when you look into the mirror, what do you see? I see a lot of early mornings at the gym come January. Anybody else? Not in December. I shall enjoy this. But January. I see a few more gray hairs than there were a few years ago. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Do you see some mistakes? Do you see some sins? Sometimes we're our own worst critics when we look in the mirror, you know? We, we, we're hard on ourselves. We're, it's easy for us to be reminded of all the things that we've done wrong, and sometimes Christmas makes it worse. You might even get to spend some time with an aunt and uncle who will remind you um, of your own mistakes. You got one of those family members? It's easy to look in the mirror and see our shortcomings, look back on the year that just is behind us, and think about the things that we did that we shouldn't have done, the things that we said that we shouldn't have said, the relationships that we fumbled, the mistakes we made. I mean, after all, who's been perfect in 2022? None of us. I've done things I shouldn't have done this year. I've said things I shouldn't have said this year. We've all made mistakes, and sometimes it's easy to see that when we look in the mirror, our mistakes, our shortcomings. In fact, I think we see the limitations of what I call the, the P's, the limitations of the P's. We see our past. We look and, and we see the mistakes from our past. We look in the mirror and we see the sins that we just can't quite get over. Even if we've asked for forgiveness, sometimes we have knelt down at countless altars and given it to God, but we still feel the shame and guilt. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, well, Carter, you, <laughs> if you'd known what I've done, we just can't get over our past. Some of it, the problem is the limitations of our potential. We look in the mirror and we just don't quite see the gifting, the talent that other people have. We see someone that's not quite tall enough, that's not quite fast enough, that's not quite smart enough, that's just not as gifted as other people. They just have so much more to offer, so many more talents, so many more skills. And we just sometimes don't feel like we offer much real value at all. We see limitations of our past, limitations of our potential. Sometimes we see limitations of our pedigree. We, we just, you know, we don't come from a great family. Daddy wasn't influential. Mama wasn't a power broker. I wasn't born into a, a, a family that... that accomplished anything. I'm just a nobody from a nothing family. I wasn't born a Kennedy or a Bezos. Nothing about my family's history says I'll ever accomplish anything because no one in my family has ever even made it. We look in that mirror and we see limitations and shortcomings from our past, our potential, our pedigree. And finally, we look in the mirror and we see limitations 
How about paycheck? I like, I just don't have enough money. I, I, I can't have any, I don't have any enough, any money to, to move the needle, to make a dent. If money is power, and I'm just trying to pay the power bill. Right? I, I, I just, I can't make a splash with my money. The truth is that a lot of us look in the mirror and we see all of these things, the limitations of our past, our potential, our pedigree, our paycheck, our shortcomings. What do you, what do you see? Is it something else? Essentially, here's the problem. We see obstacles. We see obstacles. We see all the reasons why God can't do anything in us and through us. In fact, often the greatest obstacle is us because of a word that should never be uttered by people of faith. This is a bad four-letter word for followers of Jesus. I can't even believe I'm going to say it in church. Y'all really worried right now, aren't you? <laughs> just. I'm just 30. I'm just a college student. I'm just a teenager. I'm just an engineer. I, I'm just a nurse. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm just an educator. I'm just a business person. I'm just a retired guy. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I've just been at the church for a year. I just became a Christian. I just have so much baggage in my past. I just don't have all the talents that other people have. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm just. I'm just. I've just got so many obstacles. But friends, I'm convinced of this, and this message is so prevalent in Scripture, and this is the reason, this is the heart behind why we sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem, every Christmas. Where we see obstacles, God sees opportunities. Where we see obstacles, God sees opportunities. Where we see excuses and reasons for why God can't move, for why it shouldn't work, God sees an opportunity to move in a mighty way. After all, listen, if there were no obstacles, there'd be no opportunity for him to show his omnipotence through our obedience. Do you get that? If there were no obstacles, there would be no opportunity for him to show his omnipotence through our obedience. God sees obstacles as just an opportunity to show his omnipotence, his power, his glory, if we would just trust him. So where are the obstacles in your life? When you look in the mirror, what are the shortcomings? Is it your past? Is it your pedigree? Is it your paycheck? Is it your potential? Is it something else? I think, I think when God saw Bethlehem, he saw what the world called an obstacle as an opportunity. After all, why in the world would the Savior of the world be born in this little old town called Bethlehem. And the reason is because God is a promise keeper. When I was in 
college, my freshman year, I took a statistics class. I know a lot of our college students over here. Anybody taking statistics? Hey, one do you like your class? No, I'm so sorry. I had a great statistics teacher. I'm sure he is retired by now. I had a great statistics teacher. I don't know that I was crazy about statistics, but a teacher makes the class, right? And uh, he was just a lot of fun. And we were on the quarter system then, so we had, uh, we had long classes, like an hour and 40 minutes. So we would do like 45 minutes and then get a break. And he would often ask questions sometimes about what we were uh, going to break, about what we were studying. And we were studying probability. So here's the question that he asked before uh, going to break. And he said, I want you all to bring your answer, write it down on a piece of paper, bring it up to me. I'm going to tally it. And we're going to talk about probability when you come back. Here was the question. You put it up on the screen. We're meeting on campus tomorrow. What time and where? Now, this was before smartphones, GPS, texting, before everybody even had a laptop. This is in the dark ages of the 90s, okay? So it's like, we're supposed to meet. I'm going to meet you on campus tomorrow. What time and where? I, I went to a big state university with 30,000 plus students, thousands of acres, hundreds of buildings. How in the, where, where do you even start? And here, so we all wrote our answer down. We all go to break. We hand it to him. We come back from break. He had tallied them up. It was unbelievable. Over 50% of the class had picked the same time and the same location. Noon at the central academic landmark for campus of our university. And the reason, he said, the reason you did this and why over 50% would have showed up at the same place at the same time, you would have actually met without any other information is because our brains are kind of hardwired for probability. That when we are faced with a, with a problem that we're kind of hardwired to find what is the most probable solution. And if you had asked anyone two or 3,000 years ago, what is the most probable place for the king of the universe to be born? Well, they would have said, Rome, the center of the known world. Or maybe they would have said, Athens, Greece, the center of philosophical thought. A Jewish person would have said, well, I mean, if I got to pick the city where the Son of God was going to be born, of course it would be in the holy city in Jerusalem. But no one would have picked Bethlehem. So why Bethlehem. Why is this city, this little, I don't even call it a city, why is this old little town of Bethlehem laced into our Christmas songs and into the story of the birth of Jesus? There would have been so many better places to host the birth of a king. Does anybody know what Bethlehem means, the word in Hebrew? It means house of bread. And nobody really knows why, like historically why that was called, the why it was named the House of Bread. It wasn't famous for a bakery or anything. But I have a hunch that we're going to talk about a little later. Why Bethlehem? Why in the world did God choose this little city? Well, because there had been a promise and a promise long before even that promise. The promise that we're going to read about today is from a prophet named Micah. Micah was a prophet around 750 to 700 B.C. during the times of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, 
who were kings over Judah. He was sort of sent to speak God's word to them. And uh, in, in the, he was from a little small community called Morasheth in the very southern region of Judah or Judea. And during his time, I mean, they were facing annual pressure from a global giant named Assyria, led by a kind of an evil ruler called Tiglath-Pilesar. Uh, I talked about him last week, and he's kind of a character during a lot of these prophecies. So I'd love for you to go back and you know watch the last couple, so you see kind of how all these a lot of these prophecies are fit together and talk about a lot of the same characters. And by the time Micah shows up on the scene, frankly, it sort of seems apparent to anyone that Tiglath-Pileser and the Assyrians are going to eventually ransack Jerusalem. It looks by the time. Micah shows up, it looks like they have no shot. But God has other plans. And he sends some prophets to tell them, like Isaiah, we talked about last week. I, we're going to talk about Isaiah a little bit more next week, to tell them that, hey, listen, this is not going to happen. You're going to experience deliverance and relief from the Assyrians, and God's going to bring a time of peace. And what God prophesied and promised to those prophets eventually came true. But Micah's promise had less to do with about what's going to happen in the here and now with the pressure. Micah's promise was that God has bigger plans than even temporary deliverance for Bethlehem and Judah. God's message through Micah was a much bigger vision. So we're going to be looking in Micah chapter 5. If you want to turn in your Bibles, uh, if you've got your app there, uh, and you're watching online or you're here, you got a, a hard copy. If you don't have a hard copy, we want to give you one uh, at the bookshelves when you leave if you are in the room. Micah is kind of in the last half, last part of the Old Testament. Old Testament's the first part of your Bible. New Testament's kind of the last half. He's what we call a minor prophet, namely because his book is really short. The major prophets' books are really long. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then there's some guys like Micah and Obadiah and Amos who have really short books. But Micah is an important part of the Christmas story and God's promise through Bethlehem. Listen to what God speaks through Micah. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, you're small. Why Ephathra, first of all, right? What, what, what does that mean, Bethlehem Ephathra? Ephathra was the old name for Bethlehem. So for a time, it used to be known as Ephathra. Then it kind of got to be known as Bethlehem Ephathra. And then it got to be known just as Bethlehem. Bethlehem is where Rachel, Jacob's wife, died. She, they were traveling when she gave birth to Jacob's 12th son, Benjamin. And her tomb is there. You can actually still visit what they believe is her her tomb today, that 12th son would finalize what would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now, their whole family and the whole story has a bit of a crazy history that you can read about. But each son eventually grew and became their own tribe and settled into different regions of the country. And each of the tribes had smaller family clans. Bethlehem 
was the smallest and most insignificant family clan within the tribe of Judah. And the message is loud and clear. Deliverance will come from the least expected place. Sometimes God moves in the least expected place. Because remember, where we see obstacles, God sees what? Opportunities. Are you prepared for God to move in the most least expected place in your life? In the place that seems so small and insignificant? Are you open to seeing what God might want to do with what you call an obstacle? Well, listen to what Micah speaks as the word of the Lord about this small clan in the tribe of Judah. For, out, for Bethlehem, though you're the smallest of the clans of the tribe of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Out of you, you think you're small, you think you're insignificant, but out of you will come one who will be ruler over Israel. To the world, there was nothing special about Bethlehem. Micah's message is clear. Don't worry if when you look in the mirror, if you seem insignificant. Don't worry if your impact seems small. Don't worry if you see limitations and obstacles because God sees things differently than the world sees them. Don't worry if you look at your whole life and you say, but Lord, I'm just. I'm just this. I'm just that. I'm just not quite enough. God looks at this little, little insignificant, the smallest family clan in Judah. And he said, there's more in you than you think. But Micah says, but this will not happen immediately. Because, I mean, you can imagine the news like, oh, this is great. The king that we've always needed is going to come out of Bethlehem next year, 10 years from now. This is what he says. Therefore... Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. Are you, you're going to have a season where it feels like you're abandoned. But then there is going to be one who bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. And Michael was right. It would be 700 years. 700 years. But just when it felt like the people, just when the people felt like God had given up on them, Micah says that this king will be like no other. This will not be a king who has an earthly empire, but a heavenly kingdom. Listen to how he closes it out. This king, he will stand and shepherds and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And when he comes... I know you can't imagine a day that Tiglath-Pilezar is not breathing down your neck. But listen, when he comes, you will live securely, for then his greatness will reach the very ends of the earth. You think you're a nothing little town. 
You think that God has given up on you. You think the Assyrians will win. You can't imagine a day where you have any influence, but I want to tell you something. Don't look at your obstacles. Don't tell me what you just can't do. God sends them a message. God can bring out of you more than you think is in you. God can bring out of you more than you think is in you. Whatever, when you look in the mirror and you say, I'm just, I want to tell you something. You know what you're looking at? God can bring out of you more than you think is in you. And here's the crazy thing and the awesome thing I love about this. The whole premise of this promise to Bethlehem is built on this truth and a promise, this truth and this promise that runs throughout the story of God's people. It started with a couple named Abraham and Sarah when there was no Hebrew people. And the world was a mess. God had even started over with Noah. And that didn't work. The world was a mess. And God tells Abraham and Sarah, this couple in their 70s with no children, he says, hey, I'm going to bless the whole world. I've got a plan. I'm going to make a nation out of you too. Hey, God, I don't know if you know how the whole nation thing starts. We don't even have a son. Yeah, I know. But I can bring out of you more than you think is in you. Yeah, God, I'm 75. That's what Abraham says. Yeah, I know. I know. You think you're just an old man. But Abraham, Sarah, I can bring out of you more than you think is in you. And Abraham and Sarah eventually have a son named Isaac, and Isaac grows up, and he marries Rebekah, and he and Rebekah have a son named Jacob, who's a bit of a trickster, and he ends up getting tricked himself when he's older and looking for a wife, and ends up marrying the wrong sister. Some trick, huh? He falls in love with a woman named Rachel, and he thinks he's going to marry Rachel, and their family tricks him into marrying Leah first. So now he's got these two wives, one that he's loved with and one that he doesn't care for so much. Rachel gives him two sons, his favorite, Joseph, and his baby boy, Benjamin. And can you imagine how Leah felt, unloved and unwanted? Can you imagine how Leah felt looking at the way her husband Jacob treated his favorite son and his baby boy. Can you imagine how many times Leah cried herself to sleep at night wondering if her children would be forgotten, the sons that she gave him, because she was the unwanted wife. And you can hear God's whisper to Leah, say, Leah, your sons aren't going to be forgotten. You have no idea, Leah, what I'm going to do through your son Judah. Because, Leah, you may think you are just the wife he doesn't want, but I can bring out of you more than you think is in you, Leah. And Judah grows up and becomes a family and becomes an entire tribe, and they take over this southern region of Judah with Jerusalem in the centerpiece, but Bethlehem, this small little nothing clan, But years and years later, there's a woman named Naomi from Bethlehem who has a terrible tragedy that happens to her. 
Her husband dies and her two sons die. Her only legacy and all that she's left is with her and her two daughter-in-laws. And she tells her daughters-in-law, she's like, listen, this is a bad situation. You're young. You've got a future ahead of you. Why don't you go back to your hometown and find a husband and get on with your life? And one of the daughters-in-law leaves, but one daughter-in-law named Ruth says, no, I want to go with you. Your people will be my people. Your home will be my home. And she goes, guess where? With Naomi back to live. Guess to Bethlehem. And two widows, one young and one old in a culture where men kind of ruled the day, where men were the only ones that worked and were able to bring income. They are hopeless. They are helpless. They have no status. But guess what? God can look at two widows and say, I can bring out of you more than you think is in you. And Ruth meets this man named Boaz, and they fall in love and get married, and they have a baby named Obed, and Obed gets, uh, grows up and has a child named Jesse, and Jesse has eight sons. And one day, God knocks on the door of the prophet Samuel and says, I want you to go to Jesse's house. I think the future king of Israel is there. And he goes to Jesse's house, and boy, he brings out the first seven sons, and they look presidential. But God says, neither of them the one. And he says, Jesse, you got one more son? Yeah, yeah, I got one more. And he brings this little baby boy. He was just a little shepherd boy. And Samuel's like, you know, I don't, I don't think he's quite got the look, God. And God whispers to Samuel, hey, Samuel, you don't, you don't get to choose, but I can bring out of him more than you think is in them. And this shepherd boy is anointed king of Israel, and his first kind of move on the scene is when the Philistine army, one of the mightiest in the world, is bearing down on the Israelites, and they're fighting, and they have this giant named Goliath, and no one wants to fight him, but the shepherd boy says, well, I'll do it. I mean, and he's got this memory of what God has promised him, and he goes, and they put armor on him, and they give him a sword, and he's like, something doesn't feel right about this, and God says, you know, why don't you just pick up five smooth stones, and David's like, you know, I mean, a sword couldn't hurt, God. Hey, David, just pick up the stones because I can bring out of you more than you think is in you. And David defeats Goliath in one of the most famous stories in the Bible, and he grows up to become king, and he wonders if his legacy will end with his life or his son's life. And God makes a promise to David. He says this, in 2 Samuel, he says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God, forever is a long time. Yeah, it is, David. But I can bring forever out of you, <laughs> even when you don't think forever is in you. Things are going well, David rules as king, and Israel is the biggest and baddest and most awesome it's ever been. He dies, but his son Solomon takes over and takes it to new heights. He builds a palace. He builds a temple. He's the richest man in the world. But when Solomon dies, I mean, everything falls apart. The Hebrew people are split in two with this northern kingdom in Israel and this southern kingdom in Judah. And it looks like not only will David's kingdom not last forever, it might not make it to the third generation. And God sends prophet after prophet like Isaiah and Micah to send his promises. But when the last prophet, Malachi, dies, it seems like God's promises have run dry. 
Because for 400 years, there's not a prophet. There's no word from God. Until an angel visits a young virgin girl engaged to be married to a man named Joseph and says, you are going to come pregnant. And she says, angel, I don't know if you know how this all works. How can this be? <laughs> Mary, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to overcome you because I can bring out of you more than you think is in you. And despite the scorn and the shame and the ridicule, Joseph marries her anyway. And the craziest thing happens. In her third trimester, when she is great with child, Israel is under Roman rule, and the emperor of Rome decides it's a good time to take a census. And the rule is that everyone has to go to the hometown of the head of the household, the husband and his family. And guess where Joseph's family is from? Well, you've probably heard the story. Luke writes this. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea. To where? To Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. It's easy for us to read this line in the Christmas story and see it as a prefix to all the good story where the angels are singing and the shepherds are coming and Mary's holding the baby and swaddling cloths. But this isn't just geography. This is the fulfillment of a promise. Well, they have the baby. And some months and years later, King Herod, who's king of Israel, he hears news that another king has been born. I mean, this is before Twitter, but angels singing in the sky, word gets around, okay? He's heard rumors. And he kind of mockingly asks his teachers of the law, hey, hey, guys, where is this king supposed to be born? What do... What do what do the scriptures say? And his teachers of law say, hey, don't, don't you know? In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied. And guess who they quote? Micah. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least of the rulers of Judah, even though you are tiny, even though you are just the smallest clan. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Hey, Herod, I can bring out of Bethlehem more than you think is in Bethlehem because God keeps his promises. This baby is more than a king, and out of this little town 
called the house of bread, I will bring the bread of life. And Herod, guess what? Every time this kingdom's, his kingdom's people gather and break bread together, Herod, I want you to know something. They'll forget all about you, but they'll remember him every time. And Satan, yeah, we hadn't forgotten about you. Every time that when his people look into the mirror and you tell them they are just something, you tell them they are just a sinner, they are just a screw-up, they are just a mistake, he will remind them that there is something more in them that he can bring out of them that they never thought was in them. He will remind them that there is a son or daughter inside of them. He will remind them that the image in which they were created, God's image, can be restored. Satan, they'll forget all about you. Herod, they'll forget all about you. But they'll remember him. Now listen. Yeah. We're sinners. Like You have to confess that. I have to confess that. We're called to repent of that. I, I'm broken, so broken. We have to own that. But don't you ever believe the lie that you are just that. God can bring out of you more than you think is in you. And do you know what's in you? You were born to be a daughter of the Most High King. You were born to be a son of the living God. You are worth the body of the bread of life being broken for you. And don't you ever forget it because he is a God who keeps his promises. On the night before he died, Jesus took that bread and said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And then he said, I just want you to do a simple thing. Every time you receive it, Remember me. And when you come to the table today, I want you to remember him. But I also want you to be reminded of who you are in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you can bring out of us more than we think is in us. It's easy for us, it's easy for us to look in the mirror and see a lot of obstacles. Help us to remember that you see sons and daughters. Thank you for the grace that gives us a seat at the table that we could never deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.
you're invited to come to the table to receive Holy Communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, whatever you call it. You don't have to be a member at Mountaintop. You, you don't even have to have walked in the door a follower of Jesus today. If you come and say, I want to seek newness of life in Jesus, I want that grace. I want that, that salvation. I confess my sins. You're welcome to come today. There's gluten-free at every station. There's some stations up on the top level. If you're sitting up top, you don't even have to come down here. You can just go up to that level. You're welcome to kneel down on the side and do any business with God that you got to do. Once you come to remember Him and be reminded of who you are in Him.